0: Hey Heritage, I want to welcome all of you as well as those joining us from our Bettendorf and QC West campuses and those of you joining us online as we join you here from Rock Island. This is the start of our Crave series and I'm excited and I'm glad you've chosen to join us this weekend because I believe that this series and the elements around it have the potential to radically transform our relationship with God and the communities that we live in. All of us are on a spiritual journey. We have a spiritual life. And there are ups and downs to that life. There are times of victory and times of struggle. There are seasons where we experience great growth. And then there's other seasons where they feel more like desert times. And there are times that I think our pursuit of God feels like what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 63. When he said, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land. Where there is no water. Those are powerful words that I think we can all relate to at some level or another. And they capture a bit of the heart behind the Crave series because it's designed to position us to increasingly experience God and His greater things for us as individuals and as a church. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the what behind Crave, but before I can do that, I want to spend a few moments talking about the how. Or excuse me, about the why, the reason behind crave. It's the it's the why behind the what. Ultimately to position us to step into the how and step into that key opportunity that I believe has the potential to transform our walk with God for the rest of our lives. Now, I want to get you thinking this morning, and I want to ask you a question to do that. It's a rhetorical question, so no, no need to respond out loud to me, but I just want you to think about your answer. And the question is simply: what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be ready? Think of a one-word definition. If you could think of a one-word definition for ready, what would it be? Would it be uh, something like willing, expectant, equipped, poised, prepared? I think uh, uh, the issue of ready kind of yields or leads us to this idea of being fully ready. Ready? And I, I think we can all think of times where we have been ready and when we have not been ready. We know what both feel like. And if we're like most people, we, our minds more quickly go to the moments where we have not been ready than when we were ready. Because those moments we're not ready are far more costly, if you know what I mean. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to show you a few pictures. And I want you to, they, they depict different levels of readiness. And I want you to tell me if you think those involved were ready or not. Is that okay? Does that make sense? All right, let let me show you the first picture. Here you go. Uh Uh-huh. Was this man ready? He may have been ready to hit the ball, but not to catch the ball with his face, right? No, probably not ready. Here's the next picture. Ooh, yeah. Are those three people ready for what's about to happen in 2.2 seconds? Not at all. Someone's about to get wet, right? All right, here's the next picture. Do you see it? Okay, that thing on the bottom, the big thing on the bottom is a great white shark, right? And the little thing above it is an unsuspecting waterfowl. Is that little bird ready? Not at all, not at all. Okay, last picture, here we go. let you take in the full picture for a moment. I hear some ooze. Let's zoom in, zoom in. Oh, oh, oh man. He was not ready for that, nor the six to eight weeks of having his jaw wired shut. Man, look, readiness matters. We can be ready or we can be unready. And whether we're ready determines a lot of things in our journey. And the truth is, there are times when we're not ready. Especially with unpredict- when the unpredictable thing happens. But what happens when we're not ready for the expected? Ready for what we should be ready for, or what we're responsible for. Many of you know that prior to God calling me into full-time ministry, I served as a state trooper in Pennsylvania. If I could summarize what that job was, it was about being ready for anything. One day we could be going to a crash, maybe then going to an alarm, then have a call for cattle on the roadway, to a shooting. And the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania invested a lot of time and resources into me to train me and equip me to ultimately just be ready. And they issued me equipment to do that. They issued me a bullet-resistant vest, but they also gave me a utility belt, the bat belt, this thing right here. And on it, I had pepper spray, a flashlight, a radio, a couple sets of handcuffs, latex gloves, an expandable baton, a holster to hold my firearm, and then a, a magazine pouch to hold extra ammunition. This was my bat belt. I was expected to not only have these items, but to know how to use them. And I've got to tell you, one of my most embarrassing moments came, and it related to that. See, one day I went to work, and before I even got there, there were already calls waiting for me. And so I, I quickly grabbed my uniform, I grabbed my gear, jumped in the car, and took off. And I was at that first incident probably for about 20 minutes. And I was at a point where I was interviewing the victim, and I was talking to her about what had happened, and I realized at that moment I was not ready. I realized I had forgot something. What do you think I forgot? Not my whole belt. Just the firearm. Oh, yeah. Total Barney Fife moment, folks. It was not good. Immediately, my heart sank. And then my adrenaline kicked in, and I started assessing, is this a situation that I'm going to need a firearm? And who are all the threats? And then embarrassment kicked in, and I didn't want anybody to know that I didn't have my firearm. So you know what I did? I kept my arm right here right on top of the holster. I was on, like taking notes. I'm like, okay, I'll see you later. All right. Like, what's wrong with that trooper's hand? I don't know. Hey, I'll talk to you later. I'm going to the barracks. Couldn't get back to the barracks fast enough to get my firearm. And you know what? Readiness matters. In fact, if you're following along your sermon notes guide, that word is the first fill-in. It's readiness. And it, that word is defined as this, the willingness to do something or the state of being fully prepared for something. And I was not ready that day as a trooper. Readiness matters. Now, we naturally want to be ready for the opportunities that God brings in front of us. To be ready to join Him in the work that He's doing. But the truth is, there are times when we are not ready. And it's during those times we can wonder why things don't work out. Especially in the areas of spirituality and faith. When we don't see the results we expected. When we don't grow like we thought we would. When God doesn't show up like we expected him to. It's in those times that we can end up frustrated with him because he hasn't done what we asked. And yet the problem lies with us. Because we ask God to do what we're not ready for. As we beg him to anoint something that he can't. And we can find ourselves disappointed and frustrated and even doubting him as a result. The best example, I think, of this is when we can ask God to compromise a standard or a principle that he has already put in place. Like the principle of harvest. In fact, let me say it this way, that I believe true readiness requires us to live by the principle of harvest. True readiness requires us to live by the principle of harvest. To live by the principle of what? Harvest. We need to know it and live by it. It's in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. We can read this. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting with verse 1, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, and a a time to plant, and a time to, what? Harvest. Harvest. Now, a harvest, for our purposes, I'm talking about life change. I'm talking about rescue. I'm talking about reconciliation, redemption, victory. It's the fruit of obedience, and it never comes without process. It it doesn't even come immediately after planting. There are seasons of cold, and and heat, and winter, and summer, and planting, and harvest. Yet, in church circles, we often tend to only talk about harvest— But God established harvest as a process. And we need to take a moment to understand that process or principle so that we can more fully understand the concepts behind crave. I was recently uh, with a group of leaders in a leadership development program, and we were talking about that when you look through the whole of Scripture, you can see repeatedly this principle of harvest. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. You see it in Jesus, in His teaching, in His parables. And, and harvest is—it's all throughout Scripture, and it's not a single moment. It's actually part of a process, and it has steps to it. In fact, I'll just quickly go through them. The first is to buy—you got to buy the field. The second is to plow. After that, you have to plant. After you plant, you need to water, and after you water, you need to weed. And only after we've gone through that process do we end up with a harvest. God established the world on the principle of harvest. And when we violate this principle, we miss out. Because there is a reason to each step of the journey. And harvest only comes through process. Yet I think our temptation, our tendency is to stand right here with the proverbial sickle in hand and just want harvest after harvest after harvest after harvest without any willingness or faithfulness to go back and invest in the rest of the journey. And that's ridiculous. It's absurd. It doesn't work that way. We live in the Quad Cities. And, and for miles and miles in every direction around us are what? Fields. And the farmers who work those fields, no one understand that in order to have harvest, you have to first buy the field, plow the field, plant the field, water the field, weed the field. And then and only then do you experience harvest. No one can live in a perpetual, unending harvest mode. Yet we try to. We think we can go from harvest to harvest to harvest, from one great thing to the next great thing, from win to win to win, and never have to go back and invest in the rest of the journey. But we can't. It just simply doesn't work that way. Look, I want to be really clear about what I'm talking about. I, I absolutely love spiritual harvest. I love it. When God works in the life of an individual and transforms them, I get excited about it. That's one of the reasons why I'm a pastor. It's, it's why we do what we do as a church. To see a life transformed by Jesus. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But we cannot live in a harvest-only mentality. If we do that, if we live as a church or as a person, as, an ad- as a person addicted to harvest, we will never develop the capacity to plow or plant or water or weed. And what ends up happening is that harvest will become increasingly rare, if not altogether absent completely. Yet still many of us end up hopelessly begging God to violate the principle he established. We say, God, grow this. God, produce this. Provide. Harvest, harvest, harvest. Without being willing or faithful in the rest of the journey. We, we want the faith to move mountains. But we're not able to move ourselves to get in his word every day. We'll ask God to bless us or provide for us when we've given him a mere fraction of our time and talent and treasure. We cry out to him to intervene in our lives when we've not invested more than a few minutes in prayer and stillness before him throughout the week. And we ask God to show up and do the impossible when we have not been responsible with the possible in honoring him with our daily choices. My friends, no great harvest comes without the rest of the process. No great harvest comes without the rest of the process. A a healthy Christ follower, the vitality of a church, is measured in how we handle each step of the process. And far too many people end up chasing harvests while begging God to violate the principles he's already put in place instead of just following them that the people who understand this process are the people who tend to facilitate growth and see the harvest God wants to see, the great harvest He desires. The people who look at this and, and reject it and say, I don't, I don't believe that, I'm not even going to embrace that, those people tend to be the ones who, who uh, critique harvest, the presence and absence of a harvest in a, in, a, in a place and complain. And the people who don't understand this at all because of the beauty of what harvest is and because of our desire to see that, the people who don't understand this end up living as people who chase harvests. And the greater tragedy in that is that those individuals can become people who are church hoppers, who move to one church in a time of harvest and when that harvest season is done, move to another. They just move on. But no great harvest comes without the rest of the process. And it's a process that God calls us to live in and live through and work out. In fact, it's that truth that led Paul to write one of the things that he wrote to the church in Galatia. Chapter 6, he said this, verse 9, So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. That's a great reminder of the importance of the process. And if we continue to plant and water and seed, we'll see a harvest. We'll experience greater victory. We'll see him do great things. But far too often, we live for the moment. We live for the harvest. While God is trying to do something bigger than a moment. In fact, he wants to build a movement of ever-increasing redemption and rescue and hope and healing through his people. But too often we get in the way by chasing moments, chasing the harvest, and building monuments instead of being part of the movement of God. In fact, there is a difference between a moment and a movement. There's a difference between a moment and a movement. There's a difference between a fleeting moment and a great movement of God. One is yields a great harvest that comes through process when we faithfully buy and plow and plant and water and weed. No great harvest comes without the rest of the process. So, if we've been living outside of this design, how do we get back on track? One of the best ways to engage, to do that, is to engage in activities called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. They help us plow, plant, water, weed. The spiritual disciplines are simply actions or activities done for the purpose of cultivating spiritual development. There's different descriptions for what spiritual disciplines are. They may vary a bit between any book or author you're looking at, but I like how Richard Foster, in his book Celebration Discipline, divides them into three categories. He refers to them as the inward, outward, and corporate disciplines. Inward disciplines would be meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Those outward disciplines would be simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And the corporate disciplines would be confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. And these are the means by which we plow and plant and water and weed to ultimately see the harvest God desires in us and around us. It was uh, theologian Dallas Willard and I think he has the best description of what a spiritual discipline is. I absolutely love it. He said this. He said, It's doing what we can do with our body, mind, spirit to receive from God power or ability to do what we cannot do by human effort. I like that. We do what we can do with what we have so that He can do what He wants to do with what we don't have. Now, I think it's likely safe to say that we've all done at least one of these disciplines. We worshiped and prayed earlier, even as a church this morning. Yet there is a clear expectation out of Scripture of doing these things more than once and doing them more than occasionally. In fact, it was Jesus, when He talked about the discipline of prayer, He said, when you pray, high expectation of engaging in it. He said, when you fast, high expectation of engaging in it. And that's important to understand. And and I want to unpack More of that next week. Because as cool as spiritual disciplines are, there's more to them than developing our own private spirituality. They are steps towards readiness. And they are steps towards seeing harvest. So I want to spend the rest of our time in the Gospel of Mark. There's a really cool record of an incident where the disciples learned the importance of a couple of disciplines. And so if you have your Bibles, you can click down through in your device or you can turn your pages in your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Want to get there with me? I'm going to read just a couple excerpts, but I'm going to walk and talk through most of it. This is something that happened as Jesus was returning from a really neat encounter with Moses and Elijah up on a mountain. He had taken Peter, James, and John, the three of his disciples, up onto the mountain to that experience, and he left the other nine disciples down at the bottom of the hill. That thing that happened up top was really cool. Check it out sometime. But when they came back down the hill, they saw the other nine disciples who were left behind engaged in conversation, actually a debate with a group of people and some of the religious leaders of the law, teachers of the law. In fact, Mark, in chapter 9, starting verse 14, describes it this way, this way. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. Whenever people see Jesus, there's a response. Whenever he reveals himself, we are drawn to him. And he wants to draw, him, draw people to himself through us, which is part of the reason we need to be in this process. But in this moment, they run to Jesus. And after Jesus asks what's happening, a man steps up and begins to explain. Now, what I find fascinating about that, it wasn't one of the nine disciples. It wasn't one of his men. He said, oh, hey, Jesus, this is what's going on. They were, they were silent. This man stepped up. The man said, look, I brought my son who is possessed by an evil spirit to your disciples and they were not able to drive that spirit out. They weren't able to heal him. And then Jesus has this brief interaction with this man. It's really kind of a neat thing you can read at some point. But then at the end of that, Jesus casts out that evil spirit with a simple command and the boy is healed. But this is where I think the story gets interesting. Because then Jesus and his disciples move into a more private setting. And in that private setting, his disciples ask, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we drive out that spirit And I think it's not unreasonable that they would have been expecting Jesus to say something like, Well, I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. I can do things you can't. That's not at all what he says. In fact, what he does in his response is he illuminates a lack of readiness on their part. They weren't prepared. A failure on their part. He actually, in a way, he says, you blew it because you weren't ready. Let's look at actually what he says, though. Verse 28 of chapter 9. And then he, he, he came into the house. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. What's the implication of that statement? I mean, it's huge. The implication is they were not engaged in prayer and fasting as they should have been or could have been. That's huge. In fact, what Jesus said... his brief explanation, it tells us a few key things that we need to understand. First is this, that prayer and fasting are a powerful combination. Prayer and fasting are a powerful combination. Now, not every translation of this passage includes both prayer and fasting. The reason that is, is not every manuscript has both prayer and fasting. There's some that do and some that don't. So some translations have both and some don't. But I have personally seen God work powerfully through the combination of prayer and fasting. In significant ways. They are a powerful combination. In fact, fasting without prayer is called a diet. It's nothing more than empty self-denial. Together, things change. Prayer and fasting are a powerful combination. The second observation is that some things only happen by prayer and fasting. Some things only happen by prayer and fasting. The nine were not involved in prayer and fasting as they should have been. If they had been, they would have been positioned to make a difference for God. Instead, the result was they were not ready to be part of what God wanted to do. Now, in Jesus' explanation, he's not just, he's he's implying this to them and their behavior. He's not just saying, hey, look, here's a description of a spirit who requires a certain investment ahead of time to make this spirit go away. That is not the end of what he's saying. He's really addressing the reality that some things only happen by prayer and fasting. And not engaging in a discipline like prayer or fasting always makes us less effective for God. It limits our usefulness. But like plowing and planting and watering and weeding, consistently engaging in spiritual disciplines position us to be used by God more fully and to see the harvest He wants to bring. When we don't engage in them, God has to work in spite of us far more often than he can work through us. Here's the final observation I see here, that prayer and fasting are essential for readiness. They're essential for readiness. Readiness doesn't just happen, just like a harvest doesn't just happen. We have to be faithful in doing our part so that God is willing and able to do his part. Prayer and fasting are essential for readiness. So, having looked at all that, I think I want to give you a question that you and I can spend in our quiet time with God just chewing on, just wrestling with. And it relates to the issue of readiness. And the question I'm giving you is simply this What is defining your readiness? What is defining your readiness? What is defining your level of readiness to plow or plant or weed or water? What is defining your readiness to work to see a harvest and to be used by God? What's defining your readiness? When we pursue God through spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, we are plowing and planting and watering, which prepares us for the harvest. And it's essential. So what is defining your readiness to date? Is it you and your priorities? Or is it God and His priorities? Perhaps you're someone who is already engaging in multiple spiritual disciplines. That is awesome. Keep doing it in increasing measure. God wants to continue to do newer, new, new things in you and through you keep leaning into that. You will be positioned to see God work in big ways. But if you find yourself today a person who's not engaging in these, then your readiness is being defined by something that is positioning you out of sequence to what God wants to do. If the totality of your spiritual journey is contained in the gathering with God's people on a weekend, your readiness is in question. If the only time you pray and the only time you and I read Scripture and the only time we engage in any other spiritual discipline is now, I can tell you we're not ready to see that God do all that He wants to do in and through us. What's defining your readiness? You know, honestly, this is hard. this This is hard work. This takes great sacrifice. This comes with a cost, but it is always worth it. So worth it. To to see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords do the miraculous, to do what He wants to do in and through us, it's always worth the sacrifice and the hardship and the difficulty of walking through that process. What's defining your readiness? You know, I think Jesus' words that day to the nine disciples had to hurt. I think it stung a little bit. a a harsh way of what he said I think would be you blew it you missed it that's kind of a harsh way of interpreting what he was saying to them and I don't I don't want that for us I, I don't want us to be like the nine as a church I want us to be ready as a church I want us to be prepared for the moments when he positions us to make a difference for him in this world We need to be. And being prepared for what God wants to do in and around and through us will require times of prayer and fasting. So, as a result, I want to invite you into a season of prayer and fasting and study in His Word. See, what God is asking us to do as a church in this next season is big. There are 200,000 people in the Quad Cities who do not yet know Jesus. And our job as the sent people of God is to go and share his love and to serve and, and speak truth in love in a way that leads them into relationship with him. So they are drawn to him. That's going to require us to engage in, in planting and plowing and watering and weeding at a whole other level. Engage in spiritual disciplines at a whole other level. And if God doesn't show up, we will fail. But let's not let the failure be because we weren't ready. That we weren't engaging in the things we needed to be doing so that we could see the harvest he wants to bring. It's too important to get this wrong. It's too important to go through life wondering why we can't do and why we can't see and why things aren't working out. So here's the deal. Here's the so what reality. I want to talk with you a little bit and explain some of, what, some of the what of Crave. Crave is a time to pursue God. It's a time to hunger for Him. It's a call to self-denial. Ultimately, we want to crave God more than we crave other things. And there's both an individual expression and a corporate expression to this thing that we're going to engage in. Individually, it's an invitation to let God do what only He can through an intentional time of pursuing Him. To, to study His Word, to pray, and engage in a personal expression of fasting leading up to Easter. I want to share a lot more information with you about that next week. And for now, what I simply want to ask you to do is to begin to pray about engaging in the process. Asking God how He wants to position you to be ready in the places He leads you to see the harvest He wants to bring about. So it's to begin to pray about engaging in the opportunity that's to come. If you don't yet know Jesus then the opportunity for you this week is to step into your own journey of moving towards a spiritual harvest in your own life as you yield your life to Jesus. If you don't know him, life is upside down. It makes no sense, and you're floundering. But once we step into a relationship with him, everything changes. And if you have yet to do that, I encourage you to have a conversation, even today with him, where you begin a process where he refines you and leads you into newer things as a new creature in him. But now, we're not talking just about an individual expression for this thing. It's not just about personal spiritual breakthrough, but a greater kingdom work and a harvest. And so there's a corporate expression. There's a church reality for us. So here's the deal. Again, I'm going to leave. They're going to have a lot of questions about this, but that's all for next week. I want to give you some brief description of what this corporate reality looks like. We're going to take a 21-day period to study God's Word together, to pray with key prayer points together, and to have a personal, individual fasting expression that surrounds that. So, March 29th, leading up to Good Friday, we're going to engage in a 21-day window of study and prayer and some personal expression of fasting. I'll talk to you more about the details of that, but the goal is to set aside activities and time to focus on Jesus. We're going to end it on on Good Friday as part of a a celebration on that day. And next week, I want to talk more specifically with you about the how About the details, about the step-in points, about the resources, about the blog we're going to be posting that talks about the prayer points and reflections for the scripture we're walking through. We're going to resource this thing and communicate with you a lot more. But for now, I just want to give you a heads up and ask you to begin to pray. Because I, I literally, I cannot wait to see what God is going to do out of this. With a people who humble themselves before Him and seek His face who will invest in in study and prayer and fasting, I guarantee he's going to start to show up and do things you'd never expected or even imagined in you and in us as a church. And I want us to be the people who are ready, not the people who are part of the nine who were not ready. And so this next season, this next week, is an opportunity where I just want you to begin to intentionally lean into a process of praying and asking God about how he is positioning you to be ready so that he can facilitate harvest through you. Because ultimately, any harvest comes from Him. He is the one who sets the captives free. It is not us. But we have a part of, to steward in the journey. And this next season will be an opportunity for us to plow and plant and water and weed so the guy can bring about the harvest he wants to see. I am, I, I'll tell you more next week. But I am truly excited. And I ask you to begin praying even now. I want to also ask you to begin considering who you might invite to the Once Upon a Time series that leads up to Easter. You know, the the idea of inviting someone to gather in church is a lot more simple than we make it. In fact, if I could give you two two things. It's a two-step process. Ask somebody if they go to church. If they say yay, yes, say good job, keep going. If they say no, say how about you try Heritage Church? It's just that simple. Now, you can add to that. I hope you add to that. But it's just that simple. And you know people who need to know Jesus this Easter. And I believe that our 21-day period of fasting and, and prayer is a moment for us to get on our knees before God and beg Him to anoint the lead up to Easter so that we can see a harvest unlike any other we've seen before that He brings for His glory, not us. Not us at all. It's for Him. I'm excited. I hope you're in on it. And next week, I want to talk to you more about the details of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in this journey, whether we have wandered, whether we've been in great seasons of wonderful growth or in desert seasons, you have constantly been faithful to us and you've been present. You've never left us or forsaken us. You have pursued us with your love and you have invited us into a process of bringing about great harvest. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people in this season who will who will buy and plow and plant and water and weed in every area that you give us to steward so that you can bring a great harvest in and through us for your glory. God, I am expectant, I am excited, and I look forward to seeing what you're going to do in and through my brothers and sisters. And I pray that this week, as they get before you, that you would continue to to speak and stir their hearts to prepare them as individuals and us as a church as we step into this season. And I pray that it is for your glory and for your will to be done. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.